neither here nor there. So um, let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 82. Psalm 82. And we have one more week. We have this week and then next week in our Psalms. And then after Labor Day, we will go to the Gospel of John. It'll be a long series, but I think it'll be a fun series. This week I started school, teaching at Griswold College. And uh, it was the first, I've only te- I have to teach two classes. Can you believe such a thing that they would pay me for only teaching two classes a week? That's better than, than uh, banker's hours, isn't it? I was telling Lynn, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a banker because they got off of work at 3 o'clock. That's how it was in those days. And I think doctors took off what day was it to play golf? Wednesdays. I said, that'd be a great job. I've got the greatest job in the world. I'll teach two classes. You know, that's hard to believe. But anyway, uh, I was exhausted after those two classes. That is absolutely the truth. And I said, why is that happening? Age. Age, is right. (laughs) It's age. And I'm starting to feel it. Okay, so when you look at Psalm 82, the very first thing you notice is that it's short. Okay? Amen. And uh, it's going to allow me to go to a couple other passages to fill you in on the background, which is good, uh, because we don't have to cover you know, 18 to 19 verses, so that's good. Um, it deals with justice and the legal system. Now, here's how I'm going to divide our psalm. And it's a pretty simple division. The first section of the psalm is verse 1 alone. And uh, this is where God is like he's in a courtroom and he's evaluating the proceedings. That's verse 1. Then verses 2 through 7 is the next section. And this is where God issues an indictment. Recently, our governor has been indicted. And God is going to issue an indictment. And then he's going to issue a sentence. And then the last section is verse 8 alone. And this is a plea for God to come and solve the problems. So let's look at this first section where God appears to be an an observer of some kind. And we'll read verse 1. It says, God stands in the congregation. I'm reading out of a New King James Bible. Some of your Bibles will say God is in the midst of a council. Okay? And there's a reason there's a difference between your text maybe and mine. But mine says God uh, stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. Now what in the world does that mean? God judges among the gods. Who are the gods that God is judging? Now we have uh, two options here. And the first option can get complicated, so I'm going to distill it down to you know, one minute explanation. Keep it simple. But the theory is that these are the false gods of the nations. And that when God divided the nations, uh, you know, the Tower of Babel, the, they all go one direction, divides the nations into their tongue. There are 70 nations. And the theory is, this is part of mythology, as well as some of the early Jewish rabbis believe this, that when God divided the 70 nations, he put 
an angel, a fallen angel, over each one of those nations to rule it. A god, a little god, over each one of those nations to rule it. And he gave them an assignment. Now you've heard like of the prince of Persia. Remember when Daniel was praying and the angels had to fight the prince of Persia to come down? And If you've ever been in that book, you'll know about that. So these would be gods over the nations. And he wanted these gods to rule the nations on his behalf and do a job. And he was going to rule one nation in particular that would give their allegiance to him. And that was going to be Israel. So here, the theory is that God is among the, the gods and he's judging those gods because they've not done what he's required them to do. Okay, that's theory one. I'm not going with that theory. So the second theory is that these gods are people. Okay? And this is a courtroom setting. Okay? And the gods here are human judges who adjudicate cases. And uh, this sounds sort of strange that, that, that humans would be called gods, but we see examples of that in the Bible. And I want to give you an example or two, okay? So the first example, I'll give you an Old Testament example, and then I'll give you a New Testament example. Look over at Exodus chapter 4. Now, Exodus chapter 4. And I think if you grasp what I'm saying here, the rest of the psalm sort of falls into place and makes sense. So that's why we're going to look at this. So if you go to Exodus chapter 4, and you know what the Exodus, Exodus is about. God chooses Moses to lead the people of Israel away from Egypt. He chooses Aaron to be his prophet. And now God speaks. And here's what he says in verse 15. This is Exodus 4, 15. Now you shall speak to him, and this would be to... Aaron, God was going to give Aaron, uh, was going to give Moses a message to deliver to Pharaoh. Let my people go. Remember what Moses said? I can't speak. Remember that? You need to choose somebody else. So he says, well, your brother will speak for you. But you have to tell him what to say. Okay? So look what it says. Now you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people. And he himself shall be as a mouth for you. And you shall be to him as what? As God. You see that? It's because when you speak to Aaron, it would be the same as if I spoke to Aaron. You're going to be my spokesman. And so you're representing me. You're going to be God to him. You're going to be just like God. Notice, is it like God? Yeah, it's like God. It's a simile. That means you'll be like God. Now, he says the exact same thing over in chapter 7. So I'll show you that real quick. You don't have to move very far. And verse 1, here God says to Moses, So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as a God to Pharaoh. So here's where we have human beings are likened to God. So you just see that in the Old Testament. There are other examples there. Now the New Testament. And that is found in John chapter 10. And this comes from the mouth of Jesus. And when we get to chapter 10 in John's Gospel, in the future we'll deal with this in more depth. But for right now I'll just show you the text. John chapter 10. And Jesus is having a confrontation 
with the Jewish leaders. Okay. And uh, in verse 31, the Jewish leaders, it says, took up stones to stone Jesus. And he gets in a dialogue with them. And he said, what are you trying to stone me for? Because I do good works. And uh, they, black, they basically say, in verse 33, the Jews answered him and say, for a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy, because you say, being a man, uh, because you, being a man, make yourself God. That's the charge. You're calling yourself God. Now look what Jesus said. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said what? You're God's. Not me. I'm talking about God said to his people, you're God's. And if he called them God's, to whom the word of God came and the scripture can be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world that you're blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? So here we see that Jesus points back and says in the Old Testament, God said to people, you are God's. Okay? Now, who are these people in the Old Testament that are designated as gods and sons of God? Well, kings represented God on earth, didn't they? King David represented God. He spoke on behalf of God. And in that sense, he was a God to the people. Okay. Um, prophets literally said, Thus says the Lord. They spoke on behalf of God. And in that sense, to the words of people, they were gods. They represented God's word. But there was a third group that are called gods in the scripture. And they are the judges. Okay, the judges. And the judges were appointed to represent God and make decisions regarding cases that were brought before the court system. And he said, I will reveal my will to you, how the decision should go. In fact, he revealed his will to them in his word, the law, and you will speak forth my will, and you will be like gods towards the people. Okay? So... That's what you have here. So when you go back to Psalm 82, if you think of these as judges, okay? And look what it says now in Psalm 82 and verse 1. It says, God stands in the assembly or the congregation or the council. This would be like the courtroom of the mighty. And he judges among the gods. Okay? Uh, this would be among the judges. He's judging the judges. It's like God is the invisible visitor in the courtroom. And he's watching the cases being decided. And he's evaluating, he's analyzing, he's trying to determine whether his judges are being fair or not in their decisions. He's judging the judges. Notice it says, look at the verbs, God stands. Do you see that? Look, God judges. Notice he's not passive. He's there and he's not passive. He is watching them, he's evaluating, he's judging them to see how well they represent him. So that's that first section. It sort of sets up the stage, the scene for us. Okay? Now comes his indictment. And look what he says to these judges. And you'll discover they are judges as we go through the passage. Look at verse 2. He says, How long 
will you judge hell unjustly and show partiality to the wicked. Notice what his concern is. His concern is their ongoing disregard for justice. His concern in verse 2 is they're showing partiality. They're showing favoritism toward who? The wicked. Not the innocent parties. They're showing favoritism toward the guilty parties. Who in this case are the rich people, the powerful people, who are oppressing the poor people and the disenfranchised people. And we will see that as we go through this section. Now let me ask you a question. Why would a judge, why would these judges give preference to a certain party in the case? Well, why would they do it today? <laughs> they ask the questions, they answer the questions. They would do it because either they're friends of that person or they are they're getting bribes or it's to their advantage to do it because these are powerful people. Usually when you show an advantage to somebody, it's for your advantage. Ultimately, it's for your advantage. Right? So he asks them the question. He says, you know, how long uh, will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Uh, this is what they're doing. See, they're doing this. He said, well, how long are you going to keep doing this? Right? This is what they are doing. Okay? Now we see what they should be doing. What they are doing, verse 2, look at this, verse 3, what they should be doing. Here it is. Defend the poor and the fatherless. <clears throat> to defend somebody means to protect them. In this case, protect their rights. Protect the rights of the poor. Protect the rights of orphans. Because they have no power. They have no money. They have no status. They can't help you at all. They can't do you any good. They have no one to defend themselves. They come before the courts. They didn't have juries in those days. The judge is going to make the decision. And he says, you need to protect the rights of the disenfranchised. And you need to make sure that you are metting out equal justice under the law for all people. There's no partiality. That's what they should be doing. Okay? They should do the right thing for the downtrodden. They should defend them. Now, what else should they do? Look at verse 4. Not only should they defend them, they need to deliver the poor and the needy. Deliver the poor and the needy. Don't allow them to be taken advantage of by these people. Deliver them from what? Look at verse 4. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from what? The hand of the wicked. See, the wicked have hauled them into court. The wicked are taking advantage of them, of the poor and the helpless, because the poor have no advocates. You know, The rich use the courts to take advantage of these people, to take advantage of the poor people. Look, just think about what it was like in the United States. Now, I know this is about Israel. The United States is not Israel, but just think about it. We have child labor laws now, don't we? Why do we have child labor laws? Because someone was taking advantage of child labor. 
And what did the courts do? The court said, hey, these children need to be defended. They need to be delivered. And that's what you have happening in this nation of Israel. The judges are showing partiality to the wealthy who are called wicked. The ones who are taking advantage of poor people. See? Uh, this is what's happened in the, you know, recently in the housing market in the United States. Where companies were giving loans to people who shouldn't have had loans. Getting the people in debt, then they couldn't afford to pay the loan. You say, well, they should have known that. Well, no, they were dumb. They don't know about finance. They trust these people, and these people were taking advantage of it. So what did the court have to do? Step in, straighten out the mess. See? So this is exactly what was happening in the nation of Israel. Does that make sense to you? Okay, now look at verse 5. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. Now, who in the world does the pronoun they refer to? Now, at first you would think of what? The judges. Right? Because the judges are doing wrong, and therefore they are ignorant, and they're walking in darkness. That's what you would think, wouldn't you? But you'll notice that when he talks about the judges, he doesn't use the word they. Up in verse 2, he says, uses what pronoun? How long will you? You see that? And then down in verse 6, he says, I said what? You. You see that? But in verse 5, what's the pronoun? They. So now, the they must refer, or most likely refers to something, someone else, doesn't it? So it could refer to the poor. As a result, they're, you know, they walk in darkness. It could be that. They're ignorant. But that doesn't quite make sense. So it could refer to the wicked people. The wicked people are the ones who do not understand. They don't have a right relationship with God, or they walk in darkness. So it could be that. Or, now I'm going to throw out another one. This is the professor in me, okay? It could be God speaks in verses 2 through 4, but then in verse 5, the psalmist puts in an interjection. He said, now let me give you a little aside here. Okay. These judges, look, they do not know, nor do they understand. They walk in darkness. So which one is it? I have no idea. But somebody's walking in darkness and is in ignorance. It's probably the wicked people, maybe the judges as well. I'm not sure. Okay. Now look at the end of verse 5. Because this is a sort of a concluding statement. This is a, a bottom line type, type of a statement. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. And the earth there probably means Israel, the earth around. It's talking about this realm where these people are operating. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. Now, you know what it's like to have unstable earth. We've had a couple earthquakes out in California yesterday, I think. The earth is unstable. And when the judges don't rule correctly, when the government doesn't operate the way it should, what happens? Things are unstable. And that's probably what he's saying here. Now, this kind of concept here, the wickedness and bad judging, and as a result, things are unstable, that's also found in Psalm 11. So I want you to look back at Psalm 11. At least I jotted that down. I hope this is the right Psalm. 
Yes, it is. Look at Psalm 11. And if you look at Psalm 11, and you look at verse 2, you see the same kind of characters that we see in Psalm 82. Psalm 11 and verse 2. Look what it said. Behold, look, look, the wicked. The wicked bend their bows. They're ready to, they're ready to shoot somebody, though. They make ready their arrows on the string, that they may shoot secretly, behind the scenes. He's doing something sneaky. Who are they going to shoot at? The upright in heart. And then look at this, just what we saw in verse 82. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the answer is what? Nothing. If, if, the, if the government's corrupt and the judges are corrupt, you are at their mercy and there's absolutely nothing. And that is exactly what Psalm 82 is Re-emphasizing. So go back to Psalm 82. He says in verse 5, verse 6, verse 5, They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. Hey, and let me now we'll go back to Psalm 11 in our mind. What can the righteous do? You're stuck. You're stuck with the government you got. Now in Israel, these people represented God. See? Now, our government leaders don't necessarily represent God. They represent parties. They represent a lot of other things. But in Israel, these, these judges were supposed to speak for God. And they don't speak for God. They're ignorant. Most of them probably don't even know the law the way they should know. Who knows what the situation is, but the righteous are helpless. Now here, so that's the result. Now look at the sentence. The sentence God passes. Here's what he said. I said you are gods. In other words, you represent me. I said you are gods. And all of you are the children of the Most High. You are, you represent me. You, you are in places of honor. You sit in places of honor. You wear your robes. People respect you. They're just looking for a fair deal. You're supposed to speak on my behalf, and you are not doing it. I appointed you to that office, and you're not doing it. So what he does is he passes the sentence, and look what he says. Verse 7, but you shall die like men. And then look what he says. And fall like one of the princes. In other words, don't forget, one day you're going to die. One day you're going to give an account. And he just, he just basically says, you're going to die. He may, and then, then he says this at the end of verse 7, you're going to fall like one of the princes. Well, when a, when a king or a prince falls, you know what it means when they fall? We've had presidents that have fallen. We've seen people, we've had pastors who have fallen. We've, we know what that is. It means you're going to be disgraced. You're going to be exposed for... What you really are, you see. And uh, and when you fall, and when I strike you dead, then everyone will know, you know, what you've done. Now remember, up in verse 2, we have a question. And here's the question. How long will you judge unjustly? 
How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? That's the question. How long are you going to do it? Okay, look at the sentence in verse 7. You're going to die. You're going to fall like a prince. Now guess what? Here's the question. How long are you going to keep this up? Because one day you're going to what? Die or fall. Now the answer to how long is open-ended. He doesn't say how long. He doesn't say, well, you got six years, you got three months, you got one day. He just said, how long are you going to do this? And then he gives the sentence. You're going to die. You're going to fall like a prince. So that question, how long, is open-ended, which means that as long as they're alive, there's an opportunity for them to repent. There's always an opportunity for you to repent. So that is why this open-ended question is, you know, is important. But, because it's an open-ended question, how long, coupled with you're going to die and you're going to fall, it also means at any moment when you're not expecting it, God could step right in and knock you off just like that. He could embarrass you in front of an entire nation just like that. See, so, open-ended question, how long? Well, we don't know how long. Therefore, guess what you need to do? Repent. If you don't, guess what? When you least expect it, he's going to step right in, and that's going to be the end. And you're going to be disgraced. And we've seen enough politicians in our lifetime disgraced. So then we come to the appeal. Okay? The appeal. And this is an appeal that the, the psalmist makes to God on behalf of all the people who are not really getting a fair shake. He says this. <coughs> Arise, O God, judge the earth. Arise, O God, judge the earth. Get up, stand up, uh, set things right. No. Uh, I think the psalmist knows that one day God's going to intervene, he's going to set up his own kingdom, and when he sets up his own kingdom, there's going to be equal justice for everybody. In the kingdom of God, there's no favoritism. And that's what he's saying. God, will you intervene, set up your kingdom on earth where justice prevails. Now, if you read that, now that would be for Israel reading that. Lord, do that. When the church reads that, we think of the second coming of Christ, don't we? So when the church would read this psalm, they would interpret the psalm in light of Jesus, who received an unfair trial. Did he get a fair deal? <laughs> no, he didn't get a fair deal. But God raised him from the dead and vindicated him, and one day he's going to come and set up God's kingdom, and he's going to judge the world. Remember, Jesus, the scripture says, God will judge the world by that man who he raised from the dead. That's Acts 17. That's Paul's, Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. One day, Christ is going to come back and he's going to judge the world in righteousness. And that's what this psalmist is asking God to do. And then look what he says. He tells us why God, he wants God to do it. Because you shall inherit all the nations. You're the only one. This, is, this whole world is yours. You are the ultimate judge. And these other judges have not been representing you well. Therefore, Lord, ultimately, you're responsible. Come and set up your kingdom on earth. Now, with that much said, and that's the psalm. I think that's the meaning of the psalm. That's the best I can do with it. Okay. 
when God chose Israel to be his people, he chose them to be a light to the nation. You're familiar with that concept? They were to live their lives in accordance with God's law, metting out justice, compassion for all kinds of people, so that the other nations could see how a kingdom was really to be run. And that they would come under the umbrella of the one true and living God, and they would begin to operate their nations in accordance. Blessed is the nation whose God is what? The Lord. And that's what Israel was to do. Show them what a nation looked like under the rule of God, that other nations would come in. And guess what? They failed. They did a lousy job of it. In fact, they wanted to be like the other nations, not really represent God to the other nations. Now, now you have the church. And guess what the church is to do? It's to represent God to the other nations. And the way we run our affairs is the way God should be, will one day run his affairs in the kingdom. See? So we're to be a light to the nations. And that means that when we have problems in our midst, and their decisions have to be made, and judgments that have to be meted out, and there are, that we're to do it the right way. But guess what? We often fail as well. So this is where I want to end. I want to end with 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to show you what Paul says to a church. In light of the way they're judging situations. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now what we have here, and we don't need to go into all the details, but there is there are church members in the church that are living ungodly lives. And they're committing acts of immorality. They're doing all kinds of things. And Paul is very upset over the way they're handling these situations. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 3, for example, Paul says, For I indeed, as absent from the body but present in the spirit, have already judged as though I were present. Him who has done this deed. He says, you know, he said, you're handling things wrong. I know what you should have been doing. You're not doing it right. You haven't handled the situation correctly. Here's what he said. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together, along with my spirit, don't forget I'm watching, he's saying, from this, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, Here's what you should be doing with that man who's committing immorality against his wife. Running off with other women. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not what they're doing. Guess what they're doing? They're letting the man off the hook. They're turning a, a blank eye to the situation. And they're saying, why? Because maybe the man's got money. See? Maybe he's a friend, you know, upstanding citizen in the community. And they're letting it go. Look what he says in verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Your glorying is not good. You're doing the wrong thing. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
Therefore, purge out that old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you're truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And he goes on and says, this is what you should be doing. In chapter 6 and verse 1, he says this. Dare any of you having a matter against another? Now he's going to talk about a civil case. Two believers fighting over an issue. Dare any of you having a civil matter or a matter against another? Go to a court. I dare you that you would do that. How can you go to a court against another brother? Look, before the unrighteous and not before the saints. This matter should be settled in the church. That's where the issue should be worked out. Do you not know that the saints will, look at this, one day, guess what we're going to do? Here's what it says. Don't you know the saints will what? Judge the world. When the kingdom comes, we're going to be judging the world. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Of course not. You're fit to judge even you're judging these small matters right here in the church. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining, well, this is verse 5. Do you not know that we shall judge the angels? Look at that. We're not only going to judge the world in verse 2, don't you know that one day you're going to judge the angels? How much more? Things pertaining to this life. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do not appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge. Why do you do that? Do you appoint those who are least esteemed to judge? I say to your shame. Is it so that there may not be, don't you have one wise man among you? Not even one? Who will be able to judge between his brethren? Can't you get somebody that has good sense? Filled with the Spirit that can solve the issue? But brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers. You see, this is the whole issue. The issue is just as God stood and watched the judges of Israel judge and indicted them and sentenced them so he is in our midst and he watches us how do we treat people that are that come in do we treat them fairly do we welcome them when there's a need do we defend those who are needy do we protect the needy do we deliver the needy from their needs you know so He's watching us as well. And so, just as Israel was judged by God in their midst, so God judges us in our midst. But you know something? We act like God's not even with us. We go through our emotions and we do what we want to do. And, uh, but that's not true. Remember Jesus said to the church at Laodicea, He said, Behold, I am I'm standing at the door. I'm knocking at that church door. Trying to get in. If somebody will just open that door, you know, I'll come in and I'll have fellowship with that person. See? And uh, we basically operate like humans operate without recognition that God's in our midst and that we're being judged as well. He sees everything that we do. So for us, this psalm is that we need to make sure 
that we judge rightly, we defend the poor in our midst, we help the poor in our midst. Those of us who have a lot should be helping the poor in our midst. Not necessarily every person on the street corner, but the poor in our midst we should be helping. And the fatherless in our midst, we should deliver the poor, we should deliver the needy, free them from the hand of the wicked. And that's the wicked people in our midst. <laughs> we have that as well. So that's where we'll stop. And next week we'll do our last Psalm, Psalm 83, which is uh, a little longer. And next year when we uh, start back up, we will have... Psalm 84, and you'll notice if you look in your book of Psalms, Psalm 90 starts the fourth major division of the book of Psalms. So we will actually finish up the third division in the book of Psalms, and then we'll head off into the fourth division of the book of Psalms, which ends at 108 or 109. And when we get finished that, which will probably be a year and a half from now, we will then be down the stretch into the last section. And if you can stay with me, if I can stay with you, we will have finished the Psalms in probably 10 or 11 years. Total, total. Who was with us when we started in the Psalms? Who plans to be here when we finish the Psalms? Amen. Okay. Lord, thank you for your, your word. Help us to realize that. Uh, it's not business as usual. We are to be a different kind of people. We're not to be like people out there in the world that just uh, operate on what's best for themselves. But we're to be compassionate. We're especially to, to defend and help reach out to those who have no advocates, those who are poor, those who are desperate, those who struggle day by day to exist. Help us to realize, Lord, that those of us who have been blessed and blessed for a reason, not that just we benefit from it, but you've put wisdom into our minds. You've put resources at our disposal, more than we need, so that we can help those who are in need. Help us to realize, Lord, we have a great responsibility and a great joy in serving others in Christ's name. Amen.